Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Phoenix, Arizona, it's time for Phoenix Business Radio, spotlighting the city's best businesses and the people who lead them. Welcome, everyone, to Project Management Office Hours, broadcasting to you live today from the Phoenix Business Radio X studios in Tempe, Arizona. I'm your host, PMO Joe, and we are sponsored by the PMO Squad, where advancing your project management best practices is our number one priority. We have a special show today, not just because of the great guests we have on, but because it's my birthday, the big five zero. So happy 50 to me. And I want to take a moment uh, just to talk about something that I'm in, in the midst of, maybe a midlife crisis, I don't know. Uh, but I am training for the 2018 Marine Corps Marathon that's going to be in Washington, D.C. in October. And as part of that, I am fundraising for a charity called Team Red, White, and Blue. And that organization supports veterans groups. Uh, They have multiple, I think it's over 200 chapters across the United States. And they are active with getting veterans to be active in the community through exercise and interaction. So it's a veterans charity supporting a veterans race. And I'm sacrificing my body for the good of our veterans. So if you feel like donating for that, uh, please go out to uh, the easiest way to get there is PMOJoe.com. And I have a link to the Team Red, White, and Blue charity to learn more about them, but also a link to the fundraising page uh, where you can go out and make a donation. So I appreciate that. Now, on to our show. Right, super excited today. We have two great guests with us, uh, Dave Dietz with Honeywell and Pete Stevens with Dicell Safety Systems. So thank you guys for being with us. Happy birthday. Yes. Oh, thank you. True pleasure. Likewise. Thanks. I <laughs> uh, just want to also mention for our listeners that we are monitoring Twitter. So if you have a question or a comment for Dave or Pete myself, please uh, tweet out your message using hashtag Joe. And we will get to that live on air and respond back from whoever you address your question to. So let's talk some project management, right? Dave, how about you? You Tell us a little bit about your role at Honeywell, what you do, and uh, how you're a, a good leader here in the project management community in Phoenix. Thanks, Joe, for the intro. Um, I part of the program management office for what's called Electronic Solutions. That's one of the business units inside the Honeywell Aerospace. I essentially talk to the people that don't understand an aircraft. I say we compete for everything in the cockpit of an aircraft. So whether it's the infamous black box, the radar, the radio, the autopilot software, we have program management teams of, of, of teams that are competing against other suppliers to uh, convince our end customer, Air, uh, not Airbus and Boeing, they're not the customer, they're just the OEM that we integrate the solution with. We're selling to Delta, we're selling to Southwest Airlines, why you should buy our radio or our integrated cockpit solution over time. Yep. When we secure a win, we have program management teams then to build those products to the requirements. That's the teams that know about a requirement. Then there's another team that reports through my organization that is building what we call core products, where we're trying to build our own demand to foster excitement about the product. That's where we're building things at risk, hoping that we can get the customers to come. That's actually more challenging because you're starting with a white piece of paper and a guess of where you think the market's going to be. Sure. And so... 
We manage teams there. I end up manage the portfolio spend with a number of professionals that are dotted line or directly report to me. We make the decisions on how much tailoring of oversight we do on a project. $50 million project probably is going to have a little bit more oversight than a $5 million eight-month sprint. We would hope so. There's about 800 active projects in the electronic solutions portfolio. Of the oh, wow. color of so that's a big portfolio. And it's both DOD customers and then what we call BGA or business general aviation. So think of Gulfstream, uh, those types of private business company jets, mm -hmm. as well as the airplanes that most you and I fly on, like something from Southwest Airlines, which is, by the way, three quarters of the cockpit is a Honeywell solution. And you'll never see the brand on it, but right. it's got very good penetration on that platform. And we do the tailoring of the projects, the oversight of the projects, the start and end, and figure out uh, against that balance of all those active projects where to put the people and the money. Because you're never going to get the right group of people all the time. And so there's a big balancing act that goes on during that time. Yeah, it brings back memories of uh, my time at Bell Helicopter and Cessna Aircraft. Mm -hmm. Those uh, are customers of ours. Fitting in there and, and walking down the halls of Bell Helicopter, seeing pilots in their Air Force gear, mm -hmm. talking about thanking us for what we were doing. And I was always confused at first about why are you thanking me where mm -hmm. we should be thanking you? And it was, well, when I'm up there, I feel safe because of what you're building. Good. So there, I'm sure you guys have a similar sense mm -hmm. of pride in the work you do and, and who your end customers are. Mm -hmm. So thanks. Welcome to the show, Dave. Thank you. Uh, and Pete Stevens, uh, Pete same. why don't you share with our audience a little bit about you and, and your organization? Yeah, well, currently I'm, uh, working in the automotive industry, which is a little bit different than that. Uh, you know, our, our customers are a bit more established. I would say it's a smaller program management organization, but uh, safety devices, uh, ignition elements and airbag inflators for the automotive industry, high volume, uh, pretty well established customer base uh, worldwide. And uh, my role is pretty much there uh, in terms of when we do identify these customers, most of these devices are all all custom uh, designed for different sizes of cars and such. And I'm involved in, in getting those products launched uh, within the factories that they are in. I did spend a little time in the aerospace industry doing airbags for some helicopters as well. So it's, but it's, uh, so I've seen that, that world as well. But uh, uh, this one is certainly a bit more, I would say, uh, um, higher volume and a bit more established. So if you think of the car as a cockpit, right? I mean, essentially you're, you're in there slightly different than aircraft, of course, but mm -hmm. you're both working on electronics and safety systems that are keeping us safe, whether we're on the air or on the ground, right? So mm -hmm. I, I appreciate that. And also points out how important project management is that's never in the public eye, right? There's programs in place that's implementing safety systems and maintenance systems mm -hmm. that keeps us going. And that's just why we're doing this show, right? To help the public understand how important project management It's is. interesting. You talked about the uh, cockpit analogy on a car. A lot of us have cars, for instance, that when you back out, we're just expecting that there's a display now to help you back out. And you're almost, when you get a rental car and you don't have one, you're like, oh, where is it? You get so dependent so quickly. Yeah. It's interesting though, if we tried to write the requirements for a display system on a platform and you, you know, are you an iPhone user versus you're a, an airplane, you know, X phone, whatever the thing is, yeah. everybody has their subjective requirements. And so when we bring up requirements for a user experience, the human interface requirements are so subjective. So I go, Oh great. Bring in the test pilots. Yes. I, I, I'm like, Oh no, 
we thought we had the project done and now we have 10 new personalities that we thought we had already gone through. So some things are the user experience where it's so close to your hand and it's a personal experience. Then you're like, oh, the panel didn't like it. But we were all green on our project. Right. And so you never know what the definition of done is. Well, we had, uh, <laughs> I think it might have been the last show, Kristen Call was on. She's the president of IIBA, the uh, business, analyst, business analyst chapter. And she mm-hmm. had talked about the importance of getting those requirements up front and the, mm-hmm. the role of a business analyst to help define that. And going way back in my memory book here of days at Six Sigma training, uh, we would talk about the delayer requirements versus the basic requirements and how an airbag now is basic, right? It's something that you put into a car. But back when all of us, right, were driving cars or starting out, there was no, there wasn't an airbag, right? It was a delighter. It was a luxury car, which had one of them or reclining seats in a movie theater. What, right. I'm, what I'm finding, you know, in customer requirements, it's all about how mature is the customer because, uh, a lot of the standard customers we work with uh, that have been doing this for 20 years, they know exactly what, what questions to answer and how to scope out a project. Mm-hmm. But some of uh, nowadays I'm working a lot in, in Asia and there's a lot of startups there in mm-hmm. automotive industry because it's growing like crazy in China. And a lot of these uh, small startup type companies don't know even what to ask. So those requirements end up showing up two years into the project or what have you always wreak havoc. So it's uh a double-edged sword. Sometimes when the customers are uh, quite mature, you know, they ask all the hard questions up front. It's difficult, but in the long run, it's just usually better. It's kind of funny. One of my passions is that whole definition of done at the start of a project. Okay. Mm-hmm. So everybody talks about statement works and I go, it might be a 50 page thing. I go, if I can't read in the first two pages, what I think is the done and I'm not the expert, I'm the dumbest person in the room on like a technology of something. But if I can't understand what we're supposed to be doing 18 months from now is the end state. When you get that approved project, when we turn on the money and the oversight, it's been a defined and we're going to do this. And now we turn on charge numbers for 50 people in five working locations. Some are in China, some are in India, some are in Ohio and somewhere in Arizona, we can spend a lot of money on the wrong stuff quickly. Really quickly. Yeah. So for me, that's one of my biggest things is read the statement of work and understand it. And does the team know what they're really working? It sounds really basic, but if you don't know that unity of effort, you don't garner what you're, where you comply your energy, you could literally bad, build really bad stuff or yeah, misaligned I, things. It's probably really good intended, but it's misaligned, mm-hmm. right? So. Yeah, we uh, obviously the scale and scope of your projects, the dollars add up quickly, but on smaller organizations, maybe the impact is greater, even though the dollars are smaller. Mm -hmm. And um, one of the documents I always recommend to clients that they use, even if they're a small company, but certainly the larger ones as well, is a project charter for that point, right? Get out of the statement of work where it's a contract of what we're selling and get into what is this project really going to do, right? And to your point, if you can't clearly articulate that in the first paragraph, well, then you really don't know why you're doing the project. Mm-hmm. And how is how are we as project managers going to be successful? But that makes me think also about uh, an agile mindset, right? So as, as we mature project management, we're bringing in new styles and techniques. And I know, Dave, you had talked about uh, pre-show and some information, right, of the agile mindset. And what does that mean to you? Well, so for me, I... It, there's a when you say mindset, I think in the program management office, first of all, you're supposed to encourage people to take risks and do more incremental work, 
if even we might have a project that lasts for 25 months and it, the final deliveries to the customer that's supposed to be the, we call it the, the silver labeled part at the very end. By the way, there's red and blue and, you know, essentially it's not platinum. It's, it's, well, it'll stop at silver. There you go. There you go. Well, they, until they pay the bill, right? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> but, but I think that for, for us, to me, I know there's traditional definitions of agile. Oh, do things quicker. Let's get repeatable stuff. It can really work to get user feedback and did we get it right versus months of systems analysis, then start building. Are we as the professionals encouraging people to take risks, to do incremental deliveries over time to get feedback? That's what I think of. Mm -hmm. Okay. I was actually on a call. The reason I was you know barely able to get in the office here was literally I was hosting a group where we had just turned on a new change management system to move milestones on a permission workflow tool. It had been running for two weeks and the user base wasn't really happy about it, but it was an internal thing. Well, that really embraced the agile thing. We quickly got a tool out there. People were there. We quickly got a dozen people from four different businesses together to give feedback. And the poor developer in Puerto Rico's, you know, quickly making changes as you go. That was, we embraced. We got, we weren't beating them up. We were talking about what we think is needed. What can we do to keep the tool alive and meet the intent? It was a very professional it was his passion. It was his baby now. So he was very sensitive sure. and worried he was going to get overtaken by other things. And it was a really good experience for our perspective because we felt like we had the feedback to give to him, having done the users for many uh, months in another application. Now this was replacement and he was able to do it. That was in ourself, the right mindset, we thought. But that application wasn't safety critical. And so when you think about Agile, you also have to go, okay, Agile is great and sexy, but certain safety or critical applications you can't play along with. So it depends in each industry, right? How it yeah. works. You know, so that's my biggest step. Yeah. Riff right off of that is that certainly I, you know, I've, I think of it as a language thing. Uh, I kind of speak both and the waterfall of agile and uh, I speak waterfall better, but I've found situations come even in the automotive industry here where I'm working on developing a software app or something that's uh, more of a tool based thing. I'm able to speak that language to those developers, but certainly my industry doesn't doesn't recognize agile or it's all in waterfall. Mm-hmm. What's good, I think, as a profession to have seen is the latest edition of the PIMPOC, right, has brought up now agile practices and and is incorporating that. So right, if you think about our profession, the modern example of our profession, we're really not that old, right? We've been around since the late 60s, early 70s. So the maturation of the the profession is going to bring about new um, processes, the agiles of the world. Mm-hmm. And I don't think this will be the end of it. I think we'll see a continued change over time as well. But having some healthcare experience, right, we weren't agile as well, right? When we were doing projects that were implementing medical devices, uh, you you couldn't be first to market and hope that it worked, right? It, it had to work each time because patient safety was critical. So I, I agree. I think there's some industries that lend itself better for the agile practices versus the traditional project management. And so, Pete, a little bit, you had mentioned it, some work uh, with organizations in China and other organizations. One thing that I thought was fascinating is, as I've gotten to know you a little bit better is your experience internationally, right? So I, I've been in this U.S. project management bubble. What does project management look like across the globe compared to what we experience here? Yeah, I was fortunate early in my career to get spend a couple of years in Europe. And uh, uh, after I'd maybe become um, 
an experienced engineer here in the U.S. I moved off to Europe for a couple of years. And then uh, uh, now that I've returned back to this airbag industry thing, I've been uh, tasked a lot with a lot of Asian interface, which I didn't, I kind of resisted at first, but it's uh, being that we are owned by the Asian uh, culture there. So it's, it's forced me into that a bit. And uh, it, it takes about a year or two to get adapted to just the communication thing. I think as a project manager, obviously your number one thing is being able to communicate and just in subtle uh, communication, addressing problems, uh, either directly, indirectly. Uh, I think that's the biggest thing is to figure out how you can get your point across without either offending someone or actually let them know what the serious things are. So it's all about, it's communication, I think. And then recognizing their problem-solving styles. Everyone's problem-solving styles is uh, different. Uh, you'll find that Europe, Asia, the United States, we solve problems differently. And um, I guess the third, third on that is, is uh, how quick can we change directions? As Americans, I think we change directions really quick. In some of these other cultures, we get started in one direction and we're going to, there's not. What do, you, what do, you, do you consider risk tolerance different there? Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. I certainly, that's a good point. I, I, I know as an American uh, being expatted, being in other cultures, just having the product liability thing in the back of my mind constantly as a young engineer was, um, I would say, hold, held me back a lot of times. Mm-hmm. And where I saw that isn't the case in some other, other cultures, but if you're in tune with the airbag industry, product liability is a big deal nowadays. And uh, a few recalls here. And there. Yeah, this yeah. has been a little bit, and it might have something to do with why I'm back in the business. But uh, it it uh, it 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 has its place. Uh, it does hold back innovation uh, and and being able to move uh, change direction quickly. Um, and I think that's why um, um, it, it it certainly plays in into the decision-making processes, product liability and, and such. It was funny. My first years, I was an officer in the Navy for six years. And my first project management experience was in a shipyard in a barge in the St. John's River in Jacksonville, Florida. But you're living in the shipyard. Yeah. And if you screw up the schedule, your ship's force has to do the rest. So you were, you were there. That was easy. Um, you quickly got to know what a statement of work and a work breakdown structure I and bet. charge numbers and you had all that stuff. Because if you were there, we're the extra hours. When I left the Navy and then moved to defense work, I was working for Lockheed Martin at the time. It was all U.S. citizens in compartment spaces on classified systems. It was very rare that you were in separate facilities. You had a dedicated team, which is a rarity. I mean, your 30 people were in three buildings in one campus, still pretty easy. Then when I moved to another project was dispersed. Mm. And suddenly you're, oh, they're all still classified, but it was a Utah, Florida, Virginia, the, the steps in the late 90s of doing virtual application development. When I moved over to commercial aerospace and then introducing non-U.S. citizens to space, it was a big shock for me at first in that first year where about 40% of my workforce was folks in Czech Republic and India. Not because I had never not worked with them before, but then they were dedicated subcontractors on working on one subsystem. Now they're employees in all the different cultures. And for me, the Indian culture was the biggest transition challenge for me because there's a, my impression, this is Dave speaking now, it was a big, big trust issue where culturally, if they're working a project and they're supposed to be due on three weeks out and we're asking for status, about 24 hours before it, something's due, if there's bad news, they have to get that ferreted news through their entire organization internally in the organization before they'll tell you because they feel that, mm. you know, 
can we trust him? And so I met with a lot of folks once I realized they have to kind of brief their briefers and their tiers that, by the way, I never met any of their tier managers. <laughs> right. It was the allocated engineers virtually on a project. And so I've really had to get used to building very close relationships virtually with people. Twelve and a half hour time difference is the standard time difference for folks in India most of the time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I need to know about bad news. I need to know about bad, bad news and tell me, and I'm not going to beat up the messenger. <laughs> that was a big cultural shift because mm-hmm. a lot of them are worried that aerospace headquarters here that somehow they're going to lose their position or whatnot. And that was a big transition for me was the thing right away is trust. And understanding how to collaboratively work with each other. And I had always gotten used to working virtually with people but and take advantage of time zones. People east of you, west of you, things will be waiting for you when you come in. But that trust factor of when bad news comes in was a big, big cultural shift for us. Yeah. And again, I'm not trying to portray all our projects are bad. Sure. There might be 100 projects and 10 are where you're having shortage of staff or a technical challenge and that's where you supply all your time at as well. Yeah, yeah this the discussion reminds me of the a great book The World is Flat by Tom Friedman. I don't know if you either read mm-hmm. them. But that book ironically was released first published on April 5th in 2015. So 13 years ago today. Oh. That book uh, was released, but this that was a precursor, right? It was really mm-hmm. an analysis of how the world has evolved mm. from when we started project management as you discussed. Really, it was all localized, uh, and now there there really aren't walls or rooms that you're working within. It's now continents and countries mm-hmm. that you're working across, mm-hmm. um, and project management because of that is, as you mentioned, Pete, you have to be aware of the cultural differences on your project team and understand those, and not just Americanize your project. Right? Mm-hmm. It's really an international project at that point. Yeah, as Americans, I know one thing we do well is fail fast and not worry about it. Rotate turn directions and go the new direction. I know my experience in, in other cultures has been surprising that uh, people were just scared to fail and they took it personally and uh, wouldn't take risks. And I think uh, the whole risk management thought process and, and figuring out how to quantify a risk and realizing you are taking a risk really enables a lot of cultures to give it, other cultures to give it a shot. But uh, certainly uh, I've had my share of situations where um, team decided to go my direction that failed miserably and uh, I took no personal uh, of feelings about it and was willing to change directions immediately where uh, others were surprised by that and that I could keep a positive attitude and say uh, hey this no problem let's go do it try it your way now mm-hmm. and uh, uh, anyway I think that's risk management is really plays into that I think all of this discussion really to me revolves around leadership right and if we think about project management Uh, at least my view of the world, is that what we work on are the most important things that the organization has said we're going to fund, right? We're going to put people, uh, dollars, and equipment to work on these projects because they're going to change the way we do business or improve the way we do business. And the person that's in charge of that is a project manager. What a great responsibility to have in that role. so to me, leadership styles and techniques are always important for project managers to understand and to learn. So Dave, how is the servant leadership fit into your belief system? Yeah, I think that one of the things that's a big charter for me, because I've got really smart people working for me or dotted line in the group, is you want to give them tools and coaching to actually be successful. You know, you're trying to look across 
as a director, I'm trying to help them be successful. When we have an escalation review, it's not to bring a program across the carpet to yell at. It's what is the constraint that's holding you up from your success, not you're not performing. There's a difference. Mm-hmm. Hey, if you want to have the that parking lot carpet conversations, if your project's red, if you would, or it's late, or it's overrunning and spend or whatever, that's a different conversation than what is the hindrance from you making your next milestone? Or, oh, there's nine different people competing for three, nine different projects competing for the reuse of those three. Somebody's got to get in line and extra set expectations. You can't be number one. Yeah. And so for me, the biggest thing is what can we do to put in processes and help and people to reduce roadblocks, help people over time. And so it's funny when we we have escalation reviews once a month against the portfolio. I literally sit two weeks out and they're like, oh, Dietz is walking around with his portfolio again. Great. I got an invite. And I'm like, I gave a warning in advance and said, Bob, Sue and Sally, your project, congratulations, has been identified for escalation. <laughs> Lucky you. The reason why we're here is, and by the way, they want to come in with all their slides forever. I'm like, of no, course. dumb it down to two slides or less. Here's your real problem against this one project. What's your plan and what could or is holding you back and what can we do versus you're late and we're going to yell at you because you're over your project budget or your technical parameters aren't there. And it's a totally different shift in mentality. I think that's important. Again, I, I, by the way, they don't trust that message. They course. still think they're going to get yelled at, well, by the way. I <laughs> think it's a big setup, actually. That's the human nature, right? <laughs> uh, just don't yell at them. So that's exactly what's great about project management, also, that I love this profession, right? It just mm-hmm. is who I am. I, I'm just wired this way. Is that everything that we talk about, it doesn't matter how big or small your company is. So doing a issues review, like you were talking about, mm-hmm can fit in any size company in any size industry. It doesn't matter what your project is about, who's on the team, and what your challenges are. Bringing your team together to do that sort of communication can be so beneficial. So that's why I love this show is the ability to share these techniques that you may be using at Honeywell Mm -hmm. that plug in at any company and somebody can reach out to you and say, hey, Dave, I heard you on the radio talking about that. Mm -hmm. How can we make that better at my organization? And that's the power of what we're trying to do here with project management office hours. That servant leadership thing can, is, for me, is always the small stuff. It just makes me think about this morning. I woke up at five this morning with the thought of something I screwed up yesterday. And I, I realized, oh, I let some people down, went straight in this morning and went to their desk, sat down, said, and they have the fear the the fear in their eyes thinking, oh, you know, what new project you said to get got escalated on my part. I sat down, hey, I just need to tell you about yesterday. I blew it. I forgot certain meeting situation. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. And it, it's look the surprising look you get on people's eyes, uh, I think, drives that stuff home. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, Angela and Mary, if you guys are listening, uh, I'm still sorry. So anyhow, that, <laughs> you know, it, I, it, I think it, it really helps uh show that servant leadership thing Mm -hmm. and uh, drive those projects to do the little stuff like that. Pete, you had mentioned a little bit earlier, uh, talk about engineering. I think earlier in your career, you were primarily an engineer and now you've shifted more into the program project management side. Can you compare and contrast there and which one do you like better and remember what show you're on? (laughs) Well, yeah, Uh, you know, I, I, uh, yeah, that's true. Uh, it, it just kind of morphed. I think that happens to a lot of engineers. You either end up going the technical route or the business route more. And, and I, uh, I uh, spent a lot of time with the customers and such through my technical route. And uh, 
naturally morphed into the uh, into the project management thing. And so I I, uh, I do miss the engine, the technical highly you know on the technical side of things. All you've got to do is worry about yourself, and you've got a set of parameters, a problem solve, whatever your task is, and it's pretty easy if you have high confidence in yourself, and you can uh, pretty much predict your success rate when you get a get a task or what, whatever it is. And I love that. I love becoming an expert. That was good, really great. But since then, you know, getting to move in the project management, get exposed to a lot of things like, uh, um, I would say the gray area of a project, you know, a lot of finances, a lot of the decision-making, the strategy, all of those things. I don't think I could ever go back. Um, I know too much now, I guess, is maybe the thing. It would be difficult to find myself a bit more narrow scoped uh, when I have my mind's always thinking about the bigger picture. So I'd have to say the project management, I couldn't go back. It was an, earlier this morning, I was having a conversation with uh, the leaders to, from two veterans organizations, vets, veterans to work and vets to PM. And collectively, the three of us, we have a veterans project management mentoring program where we take transitioning veterans and pair them with a PMP to help give them some guidance as they make that transition into civilian project management. And one of the tools that Vets to PM has created is a tool called VetStone, taking a riff off of Rosetta Stone, Mm -hmm. to help translate military experience to the PMP application so that you can say, I have project management experience. So, Dave, with your military experience, kind of going off of what Pete just talked about as an engineer, and how that's now evolved, he has evolved into project management. How did you deal with that in the military? Were you an actual project manager in the military? Or what was your role and how did you make that transition? I had to civilianize my resume. I had to go, oh, I was, you know, deck officer on a U.S. warship. They don't know what that means unless they've right. seen or, or they had an uncle that was on a Navy 30 years ago or they've seen Top Gun and they all think we play volleyball all the time or something. <laughs> no, no, that's the pilots. <laughs> oh, that's sorry. the pilots. Okay. We're the surface ship guys. So we're the actual ones that go to work. No, <laughs> now, uh, for us, um, the biggest challenge for me is my last assignment was actually, I was an exchange officer in the German Navy on my last assignment. There's 16 countries where we swap people. So I was actually a navigator deck department head on a German warship, managing 40 people in the German language in the mid nineties. And then I was leaving the Navy to come back to the Twin Cities or where in the country. And so I was applying for both MBA programs and jobs and you're applying pre-internet to jobs trying to translate your resume experience into, okay, I managed 40 people, a budget of this. We did these things and it, you had to translate. And I'll be honest, the first job right out of the Navy uh, was working at a water systems company that made reverse osmosis water machines. Think of big skids the size of your garage that make really ultra clean water. No, you had managed a 24-7 production operation. Right. That's what they keyed on. The fact that I was an engineering plant engineer on a ship that ran a plant 24-7. Yeah, yeah, all that other stuff was fine. Your GPA is good, blah, blah, blah. No, you ran 24-7 concurrent production of both managing a watch team and maintenance around production is what that hiring manager, why she hired me. Yeah. So everybody has to kind of key on why. And it's funny, I met a friend uh, who's leaving the military, who's a lieutenant colonel in the Air Force. He's currently the deputy of the weapons school at Nellis Air Force Base. That's the equivalent of the Air Force's top gun. He leaves the military in August. He literally is asking for advice at happy hour on how to get ready. And I said, well, start applying for jobs now. Well, they want to see your DD-214. I go, no, 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 no. 
apply now mm-hmm. because the position you're applying for probably won't be available in August, but you're impressing the hiring managers now so that the next position that comes up, they'll remember you from an impression perspective. Absolutely. And I gave him a half a dozen different companies to go after, if you would. And I asked him to send me his resume today. And then I, you know, it hasn't come yet, but I'll right. probably, he's a pretty smart guy. I'll mark it up with him to help him, you know, translate it, to it down. Yeah. But you might have multiple versions of resumes too. A lot of people, at least in junior military officers, and I would argue anybody coming out of college too, it's really lucky if you find the job you like and what you know you're good at. Right. And most junior military officers leaving the military, it takes two job changes before they find that out. You know, when I was leaving the when I was getting my MBA at University of Minnesota at night in the late 90s, when you actually took the class, none of this virtual stuff. Right. There's a lot of Fortune 500 companies in the Twin Cities. So, I mean, I had the person that ran the Pillsbury Bake Off in my class with me, <laughs> but then was also a marketing person from a pacemaker company, Medtronic, in class with me, and a person from HB4 that made paint, and somebody from Best Buy. So, when you said marketing, dramatically different industries were sitting in class with you, and you could ask them on break what it was like to be in marketing, for instance, of those non-defense, non-aerospace companies when I was working at Lockheed during the day. Right. And that really kind of helped soul search me at the same time. But I lucked out. My sec- right away when I found out, I'd been working at this water systems company for a year and a half, and what lucked out for me is that they had a really poor payback of your, for- of your uh, MBA program. So I was looking for companies that would look for a promotion, but also yeah. then pay back full school tuition. Oh, very nice. And yeah. by accident, I found out there was a Lockheed Martin division in the Twin Cities and I applied for a job and got it. And I went from getting $1,500 a year to unlimited. <laughs> I mean, that loan was saving me thousands of and course. then I got a promotion too. So to summarize your comments, I would translate your resume into what you think is through coaching um, ways to make it civilian format for value add and probably have multiple versions. Yeah, that makes sense. And mm-hmm. and again, I think that's, uh, you know, the PMOsquad.com veteran mentor project management mentoring program. That's that's mm-hmm. what we do, right? We help mm-hmm. those veterans do that. So it's great to, to hear how someone mm-hmm. did that in real life. And, mm-hmm. and what we're doing is trying to repeat that. Um, what, what also I love about debates about project management. Every time I get somebody in here, it's great to have the discussion is what, you know, there's good project managers and there's great project managers, just like with any profession, right? That, that part's not unique, but certainly the debate of what makes you good versus what makes you great is, is a fun one to have. So Pete, you know, pretend we're drinking a couple of beers here. And what do you think is what makes you a great project manager? You're Making an assumption there, right off the bat, that I'm a great one. But yeah, I'll go with that. I've seen you uh, talk to folks before. I, I yeah, I'll go with that. There's probably a few out there who might debate that, but I, I, I'm sitting here thinking about my experiences. I think it's somebody who can, uh, you know, take their different experiences. I, I'm one of these guys that that's been a few different companies, and being able to, if you talk about, you were talking about agile a while ago, taking experiences from in from. Agile environments, taking experiences from the aerospace environments, taking experiences from the electronics industry and being able to figure out how you can take that experience and more and and I guess use it as a tool wherever you're at. And so now I'm being in the automotive industry. That's kind of what I'm trying to do is trying to take tools I've learned from other places and trying to apply them where I'm at now. 
And uh, sometimes that's a bit of a delicate uh, uh, thing to balance a walk through because you're bringing things people haven't seen before. People don't like change, and figuring out how to how to gain some sort of adoption of those ideas. I think that probably is the I would say the main thing that makes makes you great being able to take a non non standard ideas and integrate mm-hmm. them wherever you're at. I have done some polls out on projectmanagement.com to get some feedback on these sorts of things. And communication is always one that comes to the top. And so I I always kind of throw that one away because that's the softball answer. And communication is so big, right? Do you mean listening? Do you mean executive communication? Do you mean preparing PowerPoints? I mean, what do you mean by communication? Dave, interesting to hear what you think as well. I I think uh, one of the, there's three big things that jump out to me for a good program manager versus excellent or superior. And one of them, communication is not just communication at, there's two, three or four different layers of communication. One is inside your team. Does everybody know what everybody else is doing? Especially if you use diverse environments, right? Again, I'll use that example. I would say it's so rare today for our products at Honeywell that are built in one site. It's like 10%. I mean, it's, they're all over the place and you got to make sure of that. So do you keep your team together through creative means? And no, that doesn't mean you send out a group email and so forth. You got to use a variety of different ways to do it. The second thing is keep your projects sold. In other words, if I'm looking at 900 projects and let's say a color of money of certain money we're using is 300 of them. And I'm one of those poor people that has to go, okay, get your projects on the list. You're only getting 50% of your staff in this quarter. So you're on the candidate list that I'm going to cut your budget in half for the rest of the quarter. But you just had a presentation to four other stakeholders about how great you're doing at step month nine of 18 and how you're doing so great. Everybody's mm-hmm. excited. You're keeping the project exciting. You're keeping it sold if you were the program manager. It's really difficult for me at the portfolio level to say, I've got to cut his budget, even though they're not getting the people. They're actually probably going to have enough excitement from stakeholders. They'll go, oh, I'm willing to give money from my project that's understaffed to them and some of the people. And one of the things I've seen is you might have a a program manager that manages three or four at the same time, but they keep their projects sold to different stakeholders to want them to be excited about it. So not just communicate internally to your own team, but a lot of times program managers only get brought forward either for their monthly review or when things are bad. When it's green... They just want to be left alone. But are they selling their success to people along the way to keep it sold? And that means to an external customer as well as internal people. A lot of times when I cut a project, I just say, look, you, you needed 22 people. You got five. Well, guess what? Then I can take that money of that underspend and I can apply it somewhere else. Because maybe those other 20 some that aren't there, they're delayed on another project. It's not because the program manager doesn't want them. He just doesn't get them in time. He doesn't have control of that because they're all allocated to him. It's very, very um, dotted line organization and development that's where I work at. And so a lot of times I just let, oh, staffing says you're not going to get your budget. We're moving that to someone else. But if there are program managers out there that are selling the passion of their project and the success, and by the way, they're competing along with anybody else, you'll see them come to the bubble to the top. Absolutely. Yeah. I had remembered um, back at Cessna, my role there wasn't a project manager. I was in a leadership rotation program and I got rotated out of project management and I was a business relationship manager. Hmm. And my function was serving all the back office groups. So accounting, legal, corporate communication, marketing, sales, et cetera. And we would, I was the interface to IT. So I was the middleman that had to communicate business needs back to IT and IT challenges back up to those business units. 
And that was 100% of what we were doing was selling bi-directional, right? So for me, I, I always put at the top of the list, the great project managers understand the business objective of what their project is trying to do. Mm-hmm. And they stop trying to be a project manager and start trying to implement the business objective. Yeah. Right. Because ultimately we already know you have to build a schedule. You have to manage the budget. You have to manage your resources. So you're already doing that and you're good. But when you can implement on time to get the full ROI that you were supposed to, now you're great. And you're talking about what makes a good project manager. Do you think of project manager, program manager, portfolio manager, you know, as a, as a, Project manager, if you want to be a program manager, manager larger programs or even a portfolio manager, you got to figure out which, be able to have that perception as to figure out, we use it all the time where I'm at is uh, which one of these dogs can hunt. And if, if you're on a project, you need to also be able to recognize this dog won't hunt and I need to help kill it and uh, close it out or whatever you need to do. And uh, just because you're on a, you have to be in a position where you're not taking it personally, you might be on a project that for whatever reason, it could, it could be external to your company. It could be the markets change it'd be all kinds of things, but be able also not necessarily sell a dog that can't hunt. You want to make sure that you're, uh, uh, well, I think that goes back to moral courage to say, I'm going to shut something down. I mean, yeah. there's a lot of folks that I get into a room recently, like every day, <laughs> like about an hour ago. Right? Oh, yeah. Where they're, they don't want to, they, they're really happy that I said, shut it down. Cause it wasn't them. Yeah. And by the way, or my boss or some other executive or whatever, it was, we're balancing money in particular Mm -hmm. Um, and it's priorities. Everybody loves to say, Oh, the staff didn't show up so I can cut the budget. That was an easy way versus saying, no, this project isn't going to meet the objectives compared to the priority of these other three. Keep in mind, remember I said, we talk about customer Define projects versus core where we're trying to build the demand. Yeah. Assuming we still get a business case for that, assuming that's all even, somebody still has to be in the, you have to tell your child one day, one of them is your favorite. <laughs> you can't say them privately that they're not and that everybody's their favorite. Once in a while, you got to tell one of the kids, you're my favorite right now. And you have to be willing to say that. And I think that's really powerful. And then make decisions against yeah. it, right? Versus just, Oh, we always joke about Minnesota nice up in the upper mid. You know, everybody's, uh, everybody's above average. No, sometimes you got to just shut it down and say, sorry, we can't do that project anymore. I was at a executive roundtable event. This was probably about two weeks ago. Uh, and these were C-level executives helping each other grow their businesses. And one just can't kind of get over the hump, right? And one has and gotten over it really well. And, and they've grown and he asked, how did you do that? And he said, we learned how to say no. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they were the jack of all trades that was satisfying many customers, but they couldn't really keep up because they would become too diverse with what their product offering was. And as soon as they started saying no and developed what their solution really was, and they became known as people who could deliver that, they grew out uh, tremendous growth beyond that point. So to your point, mm-hmm. Dave, right, and, and certainly Pete as well, learning to say, no, this dog don't hunt, shut it down, gives you resources and funds and people to be able to go work on the projects that do. And that can differentiate your company. And so the power of project management isn't just executing a project. It's within the peripheral processes of portfolio management, resource management, and being able to say, when I manage a portfolio, I am actually improving my execution of project delivery. And a lot of people out there uh, in many organizations still struggle with that today because they think project management is just execution. 
My oldest son works for Apple Care. He's one of those guys when you make a phone call to ask about one of your devices. He's a genius. I, but there's an art of saying <laughs> that actually it was you that broke it. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll ask him how his day went. You know, what is success in customer service online, right? And he came back to me and, and I, I preached to them because he would come back to me in high school talking about how he didn't like a teacher or something like, you didn't say it that way to the teacher, which you just told me, did you? Because I said, there's an art how you say no to a teacher or a senior leader. No, we can't do your project or no, we're having a technical problem, but we can do X. So there's the decision on the courage, courage to say no. And then there's the messaging, right? Why we are going down this path instead. And I think you'll find out there's some people that just can't confront to be the messenger on how you confront bad news. In other yeah. words, and it doesn't have to be just projects in general. And I said, if you can figure out how to approach a customer, internal or stakeholder, whoever, and say no to them, but still have an agreement of what you can do for them, that is just as powerful than just successful project management. Well, we, I think as humans, take no as a, as a bad answer to something. Mm-hmm when sometimes it's actually a good answer. So it's, it's how to teach somebody to be able to say by saying, no, I'm actually helping you. And, and uh, no, I tried that speech with the teenagers. I'm just trying to help you teenager, <laughs> by saying, no, I didn't get that embracement during that time. Probably not. I do now, but I'm just saying back then, no, you know. <laughs> so, I, you know, I think all of us here have had multi-industry experience, right? We've all jumped around a bit, which is, I think, again, makes us stronger project managers. But Pete, from aerospace and defense and automotive, electronics, right? You've been in multiple industries. What is some of the commonalities you've seen or maybe some of the differences and challenges that you've seen across industries? Yeah, I, I always, I think the the goal part of it's always pretty easy to define. You know, if you really sit down, sit back and think about what your in, in, in game is, uh, that's probably the biggest common thing that I, I think it's, it's easy to run across industries that way. I think speed is probably the most challenging part of it. I, it's my impression that, you know, the electronics industry changes so fast. The products evolve so quickly that um, the speed to market, the speed to solve problems is very quick and, and fast. And as, as from my, from my personal experience, I wasn't involved in the safety end of electronics. So I saw that there wasn't that whole product liability, the whole uh, um, standardized uh, call it scope of work that you need to do in order to complete your tasks. So I think speed is the big thing. The aerospace and defense was quite slow. I, I had a call. I, I'd, I'd picked up a project from, from some, some guys uh, when I was in the aerospace and defense. had been running for a year. I worked for that company for about three years. And I think I was two years into my current company when they called me up one day and said, Hey, we just delivered the, uh, delivered the first article to the customer. And it, you know, the, the, the reports themselves went on a pallet and weighed, you know, 82 pounds or whatever it was and was, you know, three feet tall or whatever. It's so different, you know, mm-hmm. I think, so the speed to market, I think the speed of the projects is the biggest thing that you would contrast where automotive seems to be somewhat in the middle between the electronics and aerospace from my, my background. So. Yeah. I, I um, working with a client, in the semiconductor industry that's so popular here. And one of the challenges we're talking about right now is getting project managers with industry experience, or is it okay to not have industry experience? Because every industry I've gone into, they always say the same thing. You don't understand my industry, so you can't be a good project manager here. (laughs) And I said, well, 
maybe that's been the problem with your mindset is you don't mm-hmm. understand project management because you think it's actually industry dependent. And we really can excel across industries. So I, I don't know, same day for you as you, what have you noticed across industries? So I do agree without question, the aerospace defense is the slow aircraft carrier that takes a long time to turn, right? <laughs> <It is> right. <laughs> um, and I'll tell you, we, we got our goals already for 2019 or mm. feedback from our performance reviews a few a month or so ago. And without question, it was, I want your portfolio to run 5X faster. And by mm. the way, we, we heard that one. I don't know where <laughs> to start. So you know, from a DNA perspective, if you think about it, like the average project, sometimes between 18 and 22 months. And those are projects that we bid a year ago that were in month five, we're in month 15. And we're like, okay, what does that mean by... 5x faster. How do we, we have to reorganize the company processes? There's a lot to get to that jump is there without question. Um, but I agree that well, I did some big five consulting in the late 90s where I worked in three or four industries before going back into defense again. And I worked in the pharmaceutical industry for a while. For me, that industry was schedule is king. Your time to market launch date will be July of 2000, whatever. And you're going to make that date. We don't care how much money you spend. Right. But you got, by the way, you only have about a 30 month window once we get the patent or whatever the, you know, mm. each industry has a different patent window, right? And they're basically, and it goes with those levers of technical cost and schedule. Certain industries, mm. they're willing to allow for overruns and budget if you can maintain your schedule, for instance, or you have to meet a certain technical parameter. Otherwise, you just don't even get brought in. You have to meet a certain weight requirement, or if it doesn't meet this threshold of storage on a battery or whatever, it's not even going to be sold. So don't think anything about it. It has to meet a target price at a target product cost, whatever the case may be. The biggest thing is the levers of the three. I've just seen, obviously, aerospace and defense. They're pretty good at understanding the requirements. They're pretty good at understanding uh, their costs mm-hmm. they're willing to spend. It's just a matter of then they're, they go late on schedule of, of, of the balancing those three, if you would. Pharmaceutical, they'll tell you they know what the parameters are. Otherwise, they can't get FDA certification. So, And they have to meet a target window for their business case. So a lot of times their budgets are higher, for instance, with my big takeaways that I saw. And I think that it's a big art of when we walk into a marketing meeting and go, okay, I can do this project for $5 million, not $2.5 million. Will the business case stand if it's double? Right. Oh, by the way, we'll get it done in 18 months, mm-hmm. plus or minus two. What is most important? course they say all of course but you have to try to figure out and balance that as a program manager the art is figuring that out going which one has a higher tolerance of pain yeah we i had run a healthcare pmo for a few years and within healthcare we were still doing technology projects right we we were upgrading windows servers because you needed to do that Um, but we also had projects where we were upgrading the wireless within the hospital and part of that was we had to drill into walls to get the wires for the wireless system run. And when you're you're drilling holes in walls in an operating room, you can't do it 15 <laughs> minutes before a open heart surgery is scheduled like, like we did. And that patient is now not able to have his surgery. So industry uh, matters, but I think the execution of the project, I think I, I'm still a big believer and fan of we can pick up a project manager from one industry, plug them into another industry because they're going to have SMEs on their team that are going to help them with the industry knowledge. Um, I agree with that. I, I, it's more DNA. 
if we're honest, but when, when I was working up in Colorado for Lockheed about a year after I got there, project that brought me across the country, the red program, not a good color, that needed yeah. help. They relocated about a dozen of us to help a big project. The government eventually shut it down. The termination for convenience is the term they mm-hmm. use, which is really agreement to disagree on different things one way or the other. But in the end, I got reformed into a new team. And there's a lot of people that say, I have 25 years experience that I go, how many of you have ever done a project on the front end of a project in your 20 years of experience at the front end, willing to create that first spec that nobody's ever created before, or that statement of work, that first bid, whatever. You find a lot of people to say they have 20 years of work experience. They, uh, well, 15 of my 20 were in the middle of the project or at the back end, not at the front end. Mm. And so you'll find out there's personality types too. I can I, I quickly had a group that was half 20-somethings, half something that was more based on risk tolerance and ability to lead in areas they're not comfortable with and dealing with irregularity and how you balance that. And so for me, that was a new challenge to find a new team when that challenge went over time. It was a very interesting part. You mentioned first items. And, mm-hmm. and Pete, I know one of the things you've been involved in throughout your career is firstbuild.com, Army Co-Create, Local Motors, some cutting edge type things. And how are those projects where you are first, where you are prototyping, where you're, you're introducing something new to the world? How does, how does that differ from what you're doing today? Well, it's, like, it's, it's that whole thing I was talking to you about a while ago is being able to take up those, pick up those uh, experiences and apply them where you're at now. But certainly that was a completely different environment, you know, venture capital startup where really a lot of the goals are fuzzy at that point in time. You really don't know what you're going to build. Uh, this open source, source co-creation thing is half of that is being able to have an open mind to know really what the end game is. First build, you know, was a, was a, was a project there where we we're trying to, you know, utilize a crowdsourced environment to come up with ideas for really what your product's going to look like. And anyhow, it's that, that whole thing is uh, night and day different from where I'm at now in terms of where it's highly regulated. What I'm working on now, the airbag industry is a lot of pretty um, uh, standardized processes, standardized scopes of work that you end up having to complete before you can actually get your device on a vehicle before it gets crashed or what have you. Cause our, our typical uh, deadline is if you're, if your device isn't on the vehicle the day it gets crashed and gets certified, then you're not going to sell any. And so that's kind of our, our, our in, uh, scope is quite well defined now. And those, those other experiences I'd had in some of this open so- source co-creation thing is almost the complete opposite where you really don't have the end you really don't have the end in mind because uh, that's part of the process uh, of that of those projects is developing what the end might look like. So yeah, it's kind of very you, much when, more creative. When you were in, so when you say speed to market, like in the industry you're in, it's speed to market to get specifically to that milestone to get to that crash window for that test, so that you can get on platforms, right? Yeah. Okay. T- t- you know, there's, there's a few modes there. Typically, I would say the um, uh, more standard situation is that where we know that the X OEM is going to be launching this vehicle on 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 in this time frame, and usually that if there's ever a delay, it's always you're hoping <laughs> it's almost always due to someone else, and so you're but you know there's a date out there that you're trying to get onto that vehicle, and if you're not ready, uh, they'll use the other guy, mm-hmm. and you're out. And uh, the, the only way you can get on it is you it takes a lot of funding to yeah. get back on that vehicle. Uh, so yeah, yes, of Honeywell. We actually have to go through a certification process with the FAA mm-hmm. or the equivalent organization in Europe called EGASA is an acronym. And essentially, we either certify our products ourselves or we give 
the, all the documentation to our OEM like Gulfstream and they then certify it on a platform. So you're either trying to partner with a platform OEM or you're self-certifying your product yourself. And you have to, there are different ways to bring things to market based on that is what we have to work through as well. So it's essentially, it's just another regulatory hoop, but it's very critical. If you don't make it, you don't get to hunt, you know, mm-hmm. it's out. Well, surprisingly, or maybe not, we're basically at our hour. I mean, this conversation and why I love this show is when we bring like-minded people together, time flies when you're talking project management. So thank you, Dave and Pete, for being on as guests today. I really appreciate that and everything you've brought to the show and to the listeners and to our profession, right? Because that's ultimately what we're working towards. So uh, this is a reminder to everybody that we're on the first and third Thursday each month, uh, currently at 12 o'clock, but I think we may be moving to 11 o'clock uh, coming up soon. And thank you also to our sponsor, the PMO Squad. They're 100% project management focused 100% of the time, providing leadership to set up project management best practices, PMOs, project management training, project management software selection and support, and project managers to run your key strategic initiatives. Also, thank you to Phoenix Business Radio X for giving us the opportunity to talk about what we love We're very appreciative of that as well. So that's it for now. Office hours are closed. Until next time, I'm PMO Joe, and you've been listening to Project Management Office Hours, our retrospective on project management lessons learned.